Hello and welcome to On Resistance. We are a horizontal radio collective agitating the airwaves. Uh, this is our five-week series, and this is our fourth installment, Militarization, Domestic and Abroad. Do we want to go around and introduce ourselves? I'm Anton. Hi, this is X. This is Jessica. Thanks for listening to our fourth show. Hello, I'm Bobby London. I'll be facilitating today's show, and we're also joined with a guest today. Hi, my name is Alexa, and thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to join this conversation. We have a lot to talk about, so let's kind of let's just jump in it. There's been a lot of discussion about militarization within protest communities, but we know that non-white communities have experienced militarization since these lands have first been occupied. For instance, like the police. There's always that guys where they're here to protect and serve us, when in actuality, their original role since the inception of the police were to protect and serve property of the capitalists, of people who own property, people who own people and women and children. We're focusing on LAPD because we're in LA, but the entire United States is on a path towards solidifying fascism, which is, you know, working with private industry groups here and abroad to strengthen their control over areas and space. There's such a culture of militarization and glorification and also just a culture glorifying violence, not necessarily self-defense, but violence that communities experience because of the aggression of the United States government in terms of like the drug war, violence between street organizations that have evolved to defend themselves against the government and the occupation of their streets by the police. But there's so much violence that's happening and people are constantly being told don't be violent don't be violent don't be violent in these conditions but the avenues that are given to them to be violent are to join the police or to join the army and these are the acceptable means of violence that are specifically targeted against poor communities that this is what's made acceptable to them and also prison culture like you can go to prison also because there's intense criminalization we talk about the war on terror or the war of terror that's happening domestically here I feel like a lot of the times the United States government is very well prepared to redirect our interests as conscious beings here overseas, especially to capitalize off of liberal movements for change uh, or symbolic critique of war by having people focus on some sort of manipulated version of what's happening and the violence that people are experiencing in poverty in other areas, and then justifying our force there, which means that people don't have to address the violence that's happening here by occupying forces like the police. And also the military, the National Guard do come on the street in times of uprising, so we can't really distance the police and the military. You know, they are replicating the same hierarchical structure. This is militarization of both what we do to other countries and how we are militarized here affects all of us in various different ways. LAPD is scary. They are probably the worst police force in the country. And I would say, like, sheriffs, though, sheriffs are on steroids. <laughs> you know, like, sheriffs are in the prisons. And how they treat people in the prisons, all of this what we're talking about is dehumanizing. You know, we were, the dehumanization of, of individuals, of people, for the interests of profit, like the metro. To be able to go in and out, you know, you don't know when it's going to happen, but there's going to be, like, eight sheriffs there. And they're going to check your tap card to make sure that you swiped. And if you didn't, then they go and they frisk you and they check you and they harass you and they humiliate you. And, you know, you either get a ticket or you get arrested, depending on how they feel. And this sort of process of how we are treating the poor, right, and the houseless, because who's not going to be able to afford the $1.50 ticket to be able to ride the metro? It's like yesterday, today on my way to the studio, 
I encountered eight large sheriffs, the Western Hollywood Red Line Station. They were harassing a young black male and they were frisking him. I observed and one of the sheriffs approached me and asked, was there a problem? What was I looking at? And I said, yeah, you know, you're, you're harassing this person and you have no right to search them. And they said, oh, we're harassing this person. He didn't pay his ticket. Should we let everyone go free? It was obvious that me filming them was making them uncomfortable. So then they began to film me. And one by one, each sheriff pulled out their camera and started filming me and surrounding me with cameras getting behind me and encircling me, which was very, very scary because keep in mind the Saturday before I had just witnessed uh, two of my comrades getting arrested by sheriffs at the Metro Transit Authority meeting regarding the raising of the fees. When I think of what I just experienced yesterday and what black and brown people and houseless people and transgendered people experience every day, it's important when we think of militarization, context of both domestic and abroad, what are they militarizing? Why is there surveillance cameras everywhere? You go to a bar, there's surveillance cameras everywhere. We are always being watched and we are always being surveilled. We are in a police state. We are living under fascism. Speaking of fascism, recently there's been several articles that came out which stated that LAPD, for those who don't know, have a very have already had a very cozy relationship with Israel in regards to counterintelligent uh, skill sharing. But this time, some big high-level LAPD officers attended a trip to learn about private surveillance, one of them being our good friend Captain Frank. I definitely know that Captain Frank was at Chakwa because I saw a white man talking to him. That's Captain Frank. And I looked at him and then he looked at me and he pointed at us and we were like, whoa, <laughs> and we biked away. But Captain Frank is the head of the information technology division of the LAPD and he recently led a special trip to Israel to learn surveillance tactics used by Israeli police, Israeli military, but also take technology back with him and use it in LA on people in LA. And there was quotes by Deputy Chief Perez, and he had suggested that these technology would be great for LA, and I would love to like be able to see everyone. Captain Frank later says, we don't want people to think Big Brother is looking at them, you know, we want it just to look well, like a, dr a random drone. It's Big Brother. It is Big Brother. Next on stack is Alexa. It really reminds me that the whole Israeli experiment seems to be to see just how far they can push the capitalization of oppression and push that propaganda and encourage, you know, an entire group of people to believe that they need to keep people in a concentration camp in order to be free themselves and in order to have their own liberties. And so I really worry about that ideology coming back as well, which, I mean, I don't know, we could argue maybe it was born here and sent to Israel and is being refined. There's specific police officers that respond to pretty much every situation domestically that gets out of quote unquote control, because that's what it is. If they think that there's potential for the people to be empowered, like they will show up and try to reassert control by dispersing the crowd, by using violent, those type of measures. But Captain Frank shows up at a lot of protests. It's not surprising. We should really be thinking critically about why is this particular person, the one who is the spokesperson for their trip to Israel, is the person that's investigating technologies to come back to the more effective subordinate communities here. There were many companies and private security contractors that the LAPD was introduced to in Israel. There's a quote from a particular group, Sky Sapiens created a Hubbermast 100, and the quote on their website for their description is this. 
Whether your mission is locating illegals attempting to cross your border, crowd control at a political rally, or perhaps increasing security at your local electricity plant, SkySapiens Hovermast 100 Tethered Hovering Machine combines engineering genius and innovative materials to provide exceptional observation and surveillance capabilities. And so here we see the marketing of oppressive technology to the LAPD and the LAPD basically (laughs) basically being straight up excited. And that's what does that say about where the LAPD is on the spectrum of militarization? That's terrifying. That's really terrifying. It's interesting how the public is reacting to this, because when you think about people in really interesting positions, assuming other interesting positions like Captain Frank going to Israel or like Janet Napolitano, who is the UC president, who used to be secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. I think of the further militarization of all of the institutions that people are having to opt into, again, to proliferate their existence or get an education or get a job. Jay Ray. And when we bring up that there is such a strong alliance between the LAPD and the Israeli regime that's growing through collaboration with the government, but also introduction to specific private security contracts, specific private weapons manufacturers. Those are secrets that I think governments don't really give away very freely. And Israel's developed these weapons specifically as military operations against the Palestinian people. Mm. And so the Palestinian people are basically housed in degrees of incarceration, complete subordination by the Israeli regime. And so the fact that LA APD wants to take those military operations back and use it on a citywide local area. Um, when we're talking about protect and serve, I feel like the narrative that defends the military is the same narrative that defends the police and that there's this entire morality of war justifying these military operations and these oppressive actions. But when the people rise up, that violence and those actions are completely criminalized and ignored. There's no morality for people defending themselves. That's what at least we're being told. Yeah, it's also important to remember like how this relationship started, you know, and it was William Bratton, former police chief um, in the early 2000s here in L.A. He's now police commissioner in New York who helped orchestrate that relationship with Israel through ties of Coral Inc., which is a global risk consulting company that is sometimes referred to as the CIA of Wall Street. Also, in regards to morality and discussing the police, we have to think a lot about what is being shown on TV, and a lot of it is very, you know, pro-cop, pro-army propaganda. Um, we see that from, you know, most of the TV shows are on, most of the movies coming out, very pro-state, pro-army, pro-weapons. Just to touch upon how many people are kind of being complicit beneath this kind of structures of of control. By deferring to the past structures of control, we're giving up more than our rights. I feel like we're not only giving up our rights, but the rights of the people that are going to come after us. And I think when we see protests and when we see people acting out against the repression of the state, People will see that as violence that is is going against the lawmakers or the people who are enforcing the law. And for some reason, in this country at least, or many other countries, law you know is very, very tightly connected to morality, when in actuality law is something that represses our most natural of behaviors for the control of, of others and for the control of capital and property. So I would say that a lot of the times the police violence, the military violence, is the only legitimate violence on a mass scale. So that's what I'm trying to call into question, the very legitimacy of, of police violence the very legitimacy of militarized violence when 
why is it them that they have a complete monopoly over over violence itself and then when people question that or or they oppose that in in ways where they have to to strike against that in order to live they're seen as as insurgents or they're seen as illegitimate forms of violence next on stack we had anton and then jay ray and then alexa well, the NYPD recently opened a branch in Israel, and on the top of when you walk in, it says NYPD, the greatest police force in the world. <laughs> There's a larger plan at work if NYPD has PR for its global reputation. Obviously, it has a plan that is different from, you know, the needs of the American people, because it's not marketing itself as an American police station. It's marketing itself as a global police station. Jessica? The U.S. also recently has hired an Israeli company to reinforce a border wall between the United States and Mexico, which are two regions that have been divided, land stolen by people through conquest and genocide, and they've been named. Governments are kind of just a really centralized organization that has the most control over an area of land that they've deemed and like militarized to have a border. So these military contractors are basically coming in to build walls here uh, for the United States government, and they have a specific contract time period, but with the option of extending pending particular legislation passing that criminalizes immigration. So basically you have a contract given to an Israeli company that has a vested interest in lobbying the United States government to create worse immigration legislation so that they can extend their contract. And this is how lobbying works and this is how the government works and this is how Mm. capitalism works next is lexa i wanted to go back to what you were saying x about how police violence and military violence um abroad and at home are sanctioned by the state and Mm. sanctioned by the state's culture and then just kind of extend that to think about how there's very very other real forms of violence like especially poverty as violence and how because we pay our tribute, you know, to the state's violence, we are not able to see those as violence. And that kind of leads into the privatization of militarization and how so many mercenary armies now exist and how many privatized prisons exist and how many privatized Israeli weapons companies exist. Um, Not just Israeli, but just because we're talking about Israel right now. And how that drive for profit is based on on growth and, you know, just one wants to keep growing itself as a system and find a way to stop it, I guess. I feel like you talking about that really brings in a lot of questions around control and enslavement, I guess, when it comes to social control and then material enslavement as well as psychological. People aren't given the ability, because they're so indoctrinated by our schooling, by the subordination from school from day one, you're really indoctrinated into believing in certain restricted views of thinking that don't make you think critically about the things that you're learning about and applying these things critically to your daily routines and everything. But I just wanted to touch upon what Bobby was talking about earlier with the media and how it is basically this commodified patriotism and nationalism from our sports games, the, you know, Call of Duty and all of these like militarized games that are coming out being created by the same 
corporations like the Rand Corporation that fund war and make weapons for war. Also, there's movies that are coming out that after 9-11, there was like a whole slew of state propaganda, essentially patriotic movies that came out that were all from these same corporations that were in it to help create that kind of culture of suspicion, as well as a fear of what is foreign following like what that would do to people's psyches. Because for a long time, people were really looking at our neighbors as an other and like the state was spotlighting that as terrorism or like a threat to your safety and your comfort. So I actually spent four years in the army in the U.S. as a propagandist, uh, low enlisted. You know, wound up there for a bunch of reasons. Basically, I had my daughter when I was 16 and needed health care. Didn't really know what I was doing going in, and I learned a lot. It just wasn't what I was expecting to learn. Um, so I was called a multimedia illustrator because, of course, they're not going to call me a propagandist in the Army. And I was at the Department of Defense Information School doing training for graphics illustration, and it was like right off the bat, there they said something like, if you're going to place a, a tank or a bomber into your poster, make sure you put it going off into the sunset so it doesn't look threatening. And that just, like, floored me. I'm like, what do you God. mean? How could this not look threatening? And then looking back from there, and since I've been out, every time I come into contact with U.S. movie culture, it's a glorification of that similar sort. Mm. And I think the overwhelming repetition and how many times we see the same narratives or different spins on the same narratives is really what drives home the point. And a lot of us just have never been exposed to ideas outside of the glorification of militarization and don't know we wouldn't know them when we when we saw them really anton america's foreign policy has a lot to do with us feeling as though we are the police for the rest of the world and we see that with the foreigner that x was talking about that was vilified in the post 9-11 media that image of the Middle Eastern is controlled to a point you can't see good representations of Middle Eastern people unless they are represented through the same propaganda that vilified them. So now we have the Iron Man movie. It moves the story of Iron Man to modern times and it shows him seeing the Iraq war. He meets this Afghani prisoner of this terrorist group in this Middle Eastern country and it's a full-on vilification of terrorism and the hoarding of American weapons for use against the American invading <laughs> occupying military and they show you this afghani man and he's the helper of the white man so he helps the white man build the suit to get out of the cave because they live in a cave and it's all bad and it has to do with the tokenizing of minorities in this media and how that perfectly falls into the military viewpoint or standpoint of minorities they also feel the same way they like these movies that normalize the concept of the military and the war happening mm -hmm. yeah and part of the trend around spotlighting what you're supposed to be afraid of on top of, you know, Middle Eastern or what, what that is framed in accordance to the media that is relative to corporate interests, that is relative to the military industrial complex, spotlighting anarchism or they're like, oh, these are the faces of the people that are blowing up or attempting to blow up a bridge in Ohio. Another particular kind of grouping of people who are, have specific praxis and specific philosophies, political philosophies that go against the state. And then, of course, the state does it all it can to demonize that. And I feel like when... Uh, 
I don't know. I just, I, when I was younger, I always considered the military this kind of thing that just sucks souls. And I've never, you know, my father was in the military and I never wanted to be in the military because I was just like, if there is a soul, I don't want them to have it. And unfortunately, how the military ropes people in is this kind of false facade or sense of security. And by enrolling and enlisting into the military, you're serving your country or you're protecting the people that you love in your country it's such a facade that they sell to you when in fact most people who are in the military or who have been know that isn't the case you're actually fighting for the interests of people who have property you're fighting a rich man's war you're only protecting the interests of of the capitalists next up is alexa yeah i wanted to come back to the demonized evil foreign other be it politically or, you know, in racist context or just fascial mm. location. But it tends to be the, the evil men. And then the line that we were fed and that I was taught to construct during my training was, we have to go liberate the women. It's up to mm. us. You know, they are helpless and we need to be there to liberate them. And so this was something we saw over and over and over again that we were, you know, trained to put into all of our language, all of the language that we used. And at the same time, you know, you were going through training. There's so many female-bodied people there, but most of them are going through sexual assaults. And then you're watching the chain of command and, you know, all of your peers kind of turn on them. And it's a real public thing. If you do complain, it tends to be, well, what were you wearing? What were you drinking? You know, why were you out so late? and it tends to be you know them that, that are punished and moved or taken to train somewhere else or and there's never any punishment for you know the sexual assaulter or the rapist and how that builds this culture of just non-reporting and fear and quiet and denial and so we're going through that and at the same time we're going oh, we're going to go liberate women liberate women and final straw was um, when I learned about depleted uranium it was a little bit earlier where I was like wait dropping bombs on women is not liberating but then I learned about depleted uranium and how there's places in Iraq in the city of Basra and Fallujah where the bombardment was the heaviest with depleted uranium where up to 90% of the children being born are dying within the first year of life from depleted uranium contamination. And so, you know, so dropping bombs on women is not liberating and stealing the reproductive rights of women is not liberating. It's, you know, it's genocide. Mm -hmm. Bobby, uh, Anton, and then Bobby. Sorry, I'm getting emotional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm getting really emotional right now. The government also infiltrates social justice movements mm. in order to gain information. Something that you said made me really think about the liberating women. We are going to go overseas and liberate those women. That recently has pervaded into the organizing circles and people are actually saying we should go to these Middle Eastern countries and liberate these women and how that ideology came from somewhere. Bobby? I think when you refer to uh, the social justice, that, that women have to be liberated by, you know, having their tops off, that's like Beeman. Beeman mm -hmm. does that as like a tactic, and it actually was exposed that they were paid models, you know, that were doing that. So yeah, it is interesting, like, you know, whose idea was this? Mm -hmm. And so, so when you think about how these different tactics that what solidarity looks like, like in Bahrain, you know, when they when they're getting hit with these tear gas canisters, they're getting hit with tear gas canisters that say made in the U.S. So, you know, when we go to the consulates and we, we hold our signs and we have solidarity protests, like what, what does solidarity really look like? You know, because to me, solidarity looks like overthrowing this fascist government that is allowing for our military and for these corporations to go and try to, like, you know, run coups 
and kill people who are trying to liberate and have revolutions because we're stopping revolutions from happening. Every revolution that is happening, please do not think that America doesn't have a hand in it. Like, don't think America is not part of Ukraine or what's going on in Venezuela. Um, and so, like, when we think of, like, imperialism and we think of, like, the long history of repression, like, both domestic with here, our policies and, like, the, you know, the revolt and uprisings that happen here, but also the uprisings that are happening abroad. If you look at our role here in supporting what happens in other spaces, in whatever space we're in, it's most affecting poor communities of color, non-white communities. And the mentality of militarization and of violence is, and of the police, and the military, I feel, are an extension of the police in a way that they serve the same role in a different area for this country's interest, but not just for this country's interest, for the interest of securing power and capital. And so the tactics that are used by warmongers in power, like the police and and the military, is basically entitlement to people's lives, entitlement to people's bodies, entitlement to, like, harass and to murder and to threaten, you know, entire people to achieve particular political aims that maintain certain people's power. So when we talk about how the police interact in communities, who has access to the military, we just recently saw reform with, like, people, queers getting access to the military. So you see these, like, authoritarian groups that are trying to present themselves as reformable to the people because they know that people see that they're violent, that they don't represent their needs. And so what they're doing is trying to equalize access under this liberal idea of equality, which we can't ever achieve because we're actually conforming to a hetero-capitalist masculine idea of how society should be ordered, which is with hierarchy and violence. When we look at the corporations that are making this, this tear gas and like shipping these weapons to subordinate and smash uprisings in different areas, the companies that make these products companies like Raytheon, Boeing, these companies are in Los Angeles. Say we care about stopping the war and we have a symbolic protest outside of the consulate. But you know, actually the protests are at 5 p.m. after it's closed. I really, yep. I really do not understand. It's making me a little upset right now. <laughs> There's a really large leftist Facebook tendency in response to uprisings and revolutions and how we support by sharing links and live streams about brutality that's happening on the ground. And I feel like if we want to show solidarity with communities that are experiencing oppression, I'm beginning to look at it as a global war on the poor and mm. that we are in a fight against this hierarchical situations that are keeping us in this war on the poor and solidarity is working against and to dismantle and to discredit the U.S. government and the military and the violence here that is solidarity with movements in different areas to stop the influence of the United States and directing their resources in different areas we need to agitate here and that does include repression and so we do need to build even if people aren't in a place where they're like I want to revolt and I feel this is necessary and I feel like we need to overturn hierarchy and oppression repression is coming anyway we need movements at least to defend and to prepare for the repressive mechanisms of the state even if you aren't ready to make that an offensive movement against the Mm. state i do understand the fear because there is the militarization and the police so let's just admit that there's fear to actually be effective in support of these communities in these uprisings because we know that we're militarized here too and if we go to boeing and if we go to raytheon we know that's right across from lax what are they going to do they're going to use the language of terror to justify violence against us for fighting their terror. And I think like that is something that I think is a real thing that that in these sort of spaces of um, resistant culture, 
that people are maybe not necessarily like comfortable talking about yet, you know, because I feel like necessarily like I feel like we're at the point where there's no longer when we talk about what, you know, how do you fight back? What do you do? You know, like we're at the point where it's like you revolt. We revolt. We need revolution. That That's where we're at right now. But but revolution is scary. You know, revolution is a very scary thing. And fear comes with repression. And because we're so highly militarized, just like on the daily, just as individuals, just for who we are and for the color of our skin, then we're even more oppressed when we go to these for lack of a better way of saying it, protest spaces. So I think conversations about acknowledging that, like, yeah, you know, revolution, talking about revolt and these things are scary and the government is repressive, but, but we're at a point where, where there's nothing else we can do. Thank you. Don't let them shape our resistance. I think it's really important that we do have a, a queer politic and an intersectional analysis when it comes to all of the things that we're, we're facing and that we're arguing against. I feel when it comes to issues of women's liberation and queer liberation, finding solidarity within that to overthrow the powers that are oppressing us, overthrowing the power that is giving us this lack of materials, lack of resources, lack of entitlement to our own bodies and to what we want to do with our bodies. And I just want to say that when it comes to misogyny, if regardless of it being inside of an institution that you're participating in, or even an organization that is supposed to be motivated for social justice, it's completely counter-revolutionary to hide any sort of any sort of misogyny. That's why I don't I can't organize with misogynists. I can't outright organize with people who will dehumanize women but dehumanize and belittle the efforts and really feel entitled to to speak to certain spaces when it comes to experience and reputation. It's kind of hard dealing with that when you have a lot of great organizations doing a lot of great things, but inside of these organizations, there are misogynists that are covering up misogyny. It's something that needs to be taken into account if we want to continue on with this struggle, because if we can't bring women into these organizations, if we can't bring children or queers into these organizations, that in itself is exclusionary and kind of revolutionary. There has been this kind of mass, well, maybe not mass. I mean, that's what they were calling it once kind of global struggle for autonomy was getting a little bit more uh, noticed is there was like an escalation of police tactics and the militarization of local police forces that has happened since that unrest. And you see a lot of the, the military kind of the proliferation of the military abroad and overseas, a lot of their toys are being brought back here, being brought back to the states to use on civilians. They're getting the practice overseas and then they're bringing that back here to further create drills with regular people. Also, you have cities completely going bankrupt, like in, in Stockton in 2012, you know, the city was declaring bankruptcy and the police were able to buy a tank to deflect prote a general strike that was going to be called for by the people. That was the people's taxpayer money going to more military services and more police propaganda, more police enforcement and tools and technology. Next on stack, Jessica. I felt like when the liberal city negotiating people that were facilitating controlling Occupy LA decided that it was over, that's when the police felt comfortable to kind of like 
take out their tactical plans that they'd been developing the entire time by clearing out this space that had been created in front of their city hall. And so what we saw that night was a massive show of force. The police had been training and had different tactical plans and had divided the encampment into sectors. And it was a very military-type operation. If we're talking about militarization, we're also talking about suppression and repression. They also had this kind of press restriction that they created where only certain people that had been cleared through the LAPD were allowed to come in and document and film what was happening. You could see with most escalations against protests that happen in response to our social and economic conditions, it's usually to divide further. Usually protesters don't have to do anything aggressive. Like the police will just amass and act in order to suppress. Even if you look at the origins of how the police developed, but especially with the development of the FBI in response to the Black Panther Party, creating special tactical units like SWAT to suppress and to control, and also to spread misinformation, like the COINTELPRO papers exposes how militarization has to exist under a culture of fear and a culture of surveillance and control. LAPD was actually trained by Israeli Defense Forces on counterinsurgencies and tactics to be used on raid night. Anton? Just two things quickly. I just want to reiterate that the militarization abroad affects people of color. And militarization on the streets and criminalization <laughs> on the streets affects people of color. To tie it into the larger theme of the war on the poor, hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> we mean these communities that are being targeted by a militarized, increasingly fascist force. I feel like we're constantly put in a reactionary position where we have to defend ourselves against policies that are just further institutionalizing the power of the state. We're not even talking about being prepared. We're talking about, and I do it too, this MTA fair. I want to show solidarity that the metro is being militarized. This is a perfect example of an institutional organization that serves the public's needs, that works with the city, that really is just giving the sheriffs and the police more power to criminalize people, and it's it's an escalation in the war on the poor. And that's why they're increasing their fares, is so that they can like have more surveillance and have more sheriffs there. Next is Alexa, then myself. So I just want to go ahead and agree completely, and it is always fascism, and it does always affect uh, communities of color more. But then I just want to extend that and just kind of, it's, it's a war on life in general. So mm-hmm. starting from the labor of reproduction and reproducing and growing human beings so that they can either be soldiers or be shot by soldiers or be in prison or, you know, guarding these cages that we keep people in. And then on top of that, just the, you know, the ecological destruction that goes along with it is just really, it's just, it just feels like a war on life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And on the planet, <laughs> it's, you know, this, the, this uranium poison is poisoning the planet. This, the military, the private military coming in and protecting these fracking sites over the the people that are protesting against these fracking sites is a war on the planet. And I just wanted to bring up what Jessica was talking about in terms of reactions to policies or reactions to kind of repressive stances. A lot of the times our resistance is being shaped by those that establish our very conditions within poverty or within racism or sexism or ableism. I wish we would have more conversations like these in public settings that are about creating strategies for change versus reacting to certain certain repressions that we're facing. Because often it isn't talked about. It's just kind of lost in these very liberal tactics, which are just made to shape and provide comfort to people who are living under capitalism versus 
people seeing their privileges that they have been giving and really simultaneously combating the oppressive systems that establish those conditions or even their privileges and interrogating the very privileges that they have, interrogating them and betraying them in order to equalize that off-balance oppression-privilege dichotomy. Because, yeah, the world is ending. <laughs> the, the All of the things are dying, and I don't mean to be that much of a bummer, but I, I do see that we don't have a lot of time to organize against this, and there's a lot of distractions that are floating around in the air when it comes to these liberal tactics that we've been using forever. When are we going to realize that it hasn't worked. It isn't working. When are we going to realize again also that living under equally oppressive economic systems, why aren't we creating our terms of resistance and why aren't we thinking about structures that people aren't born into that are oppressive? I know that you kind of try to confront and disrupt that kind of recruitment I just want to know, I mean, we've talked about creating our own kind of resistance, but I want to talk more about just withdrawal because a lot of withdrawal, I think, is a really good tactic in terms of people withdrawing from participating in the military or the police. But what's the step further that we're taking to to actually confront those military police forces that are destroying the planet? I don't know. That's a good question. Sorry. I You're think... next on stack, but <laughs> <laughs> I feel like with withdrawal has to be, you know, the building up of horizontal, livable, workable systems. And how do we find time to even imagine what these would look like? Although we've had, you know, plenty of examples with uh, with Zapatismo, with the food not bombs model, like but when we're all trying to survive living inside capitalism. And so do I know what the answers are? No, but I do know that before we can shun, you know, people for taking the easy way out and joining the military and getting that health care and getting the paycheck and housing, um, all of which are socialized in the military, how do we create alternatives? What is the alternative? Uh, yeah, on our next show, actually, we're going to be discussing alternatives. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not saying we'll necessarily be giving the answers, but that was... A good segue for um, our next installment or our last installment of our five-week series of The War on the Poor. I know just we haven't really – there are some things that just before um, we wrap everything up on the show, I just wanted for us to touch on um, the war on drugs and regarding – like in the idea of like the prison industrial complex and stand your ground. Oh, and um, an essay – uh, in regards to like Facebook and apathy in regards to that? I think that especially, you know, we're talking a lot about revolt and trying to create spaces where we can come together and not have to exist in the society or create bubbles within the society, which not just to sustain ourselves for ourselves, but to from there agitate. Because like if we can secure housing or food or safety for ourselves, that doesn't really change the fact that there's a systemic global war on the poor happening. So in terms of that, like coming together, uh, creating spaces, challenging what the dominant offered solutions are. You know, if we're talking about a systemic policing, militarization, 
problem, we really should start discussing what are the alternatives because the police and the military, unfortunately, were being told that they're used to maintain order. And like now we can see that they're actually being used to maintain disorder and to maintain terror. So a lot of suggestions that are being put forward, there's like a human rights commission in Los Angeles and that we're supposed to appeal to them and or the police commission review board or the independent civil review boards or the idea of we need to get the media on our side or we need to work with the politicians or if we just elect the right politician. Um, but the idea is that because the way police have been set up, you can't reroute power away from the police. There needs to be delegitimizing the police, community alternatives, kicking the police out of our neighborhoods, taking care of our communities ourselves, you know, challenging their control. And that's why they repress us, because they're so afraid of losing control. There is an increased militarization process that's happening, but it already has been developed for the last like decades and probably since this country has been incepted. That's not a word, right? Since this country was developed through violence, the sheriffs, the war on drugs, um, and then nationally stand your ground laws um, in Skid Row, there's a Safer Cities initiative. Um, Los Angeles Police Department also have like special orders, kind of like executive orders that they get for themselves. And special order one is giving themselves the right to research and create spying around particular people's behaviors. And that all gets like sent to a fusion center that multiple layers of law enforcement have the ability to see that. The press corps that we talked about earlier. And then also they're working on developing like predictive policing, which kind of mm. expands on trying to predict an area's crime rate and then hypercriminalize people who are in that area by stopping and profiling and for them and then illegally searching them and then arresting them and feeding them into prisons. And then also what we don't talk about and what I don't think we're going to get to talk about is how the LAPD and the military work locally with private police like the Skittles Brigade that was mentioned on our last show about housing and gentrification. Yeah, there's some things that I, I would have liked to have brought up in terms of the prison industrial complex and and housing. You know, when it comes to housing, I believe that the prison industry, prison as an industry, is kind of becoming its own housing for, you know, non-whites, for people of color, for trans individuals who are criminalized on the daily for the things that they do in, in capitalism out of desperation because you have a lot of people who are in prisons who are working for private companies and corporations and getting paid to actually live there. They're, they're paying to actually stay in prison and they're getting 20 cents an hour. They're working the same amount that other people work outside of jail, but getting a smaller amount of money for it, but it's also being taken out. So you get 20 cents an hour, but you have to pay $40 a month for your stay at the prison. That's that's its own kind of housing system that they've created within the prison industrial complex, uh, which is really disturbing. And then you, you talk about what feeds people into that even more. You talk about the CIA flooding impoverished communities with crack. Something that they did kind of more as a tactic to sway the civil rights era to kind of slow down what the Black Panther, the Black movement in general was doing to get people to resort to crime, to be lulled and dulled with this this drug enough. It creates, it, it divides and conquers with this this particular drug and then they're within the prison system. I mean, it's it's just really kind of astounding. I mean, if people have talked about this for quite a long time, but the fact that people aren't making that connection and that the fact that people are still trying to, still trying to say that the police and the CIA and like our, our state needs reform, that's the thing that's kind of asinine to me that we're not getting the fact that how can you reform an inherently hierarchical 
from the get go oppressive institution or oppressive government. I don't I don't think you can you can do that because we've tried. I would understand if we hadn't tried before, but we've done this. We've all done this many, many times. So to reform our migration, why why are we still talking about migration? Why are people still leaving, having to be pushed out of this country for not being white? Why is that still something that needs to be reformed, especially given the history of this country and the history of genocide and the like you were saying earlier, let's put them in a box, let's put them in a concentration camp because uh, that way they'll be safe. That's That's dehumanization. That's that's thinking that people can't can't take care of themselves or can't live without the need of the colonialist. So like I'm I'm just wondering where those conversations are going because there are many organizations like we've talked about who have done the research and have done the steps that it takes to expose a lot of these injustices and we've participated along alongside of them but I just want to, you know, critically engage into these efforts instead of just being sucked into union organizing or how how organizational structures are often very very colonized and not they're not really considering a lot of the problematic power plays and power relations that are replicated in, inside of these organizations next is bobby Oh, yeah. And I think that's why we saw Joyner have because he went through the institution of trying to change within or report he's quote bad apple cops we know isn't real like all cops are bastards can you say bastards in there <laughs> we'll find out <laughs> <laughs> you're dark <laughs> and yeah a cap and i think that's why you saw someone go and and respond the way he did uh jessica yeah i think we're talking about abolish the police abolish the military you know not relying on these institutions to meet our needs understanding that we are capable human beings. We didn't consent into these contracts. You know, we can create solutions ourselves. We can self-organize ways that are more effective and helpful for our community than imprisoning people or murdering them. And I also just want to note that we were talking earlier about the legitimacy of violence. And so the state will often, like, use violence to enforce its borders, like with the border patrol. Mm-hmm. And you also see, like, white supremacist groups doing the same thing. The state says they don't view them as legitimate, but the state isn't violently taking action against them. The state will violently take action against, like, grassroots groups who want to call out and stop deportations and who will go to the border and be like, no, these are people's families, don't take these people. The state will violently respond to them, but the state will actually permit white supremacist groups to act violently. And there's a protest in the Inland Empire, which has a history of white supremacy. It's like the Not One More campaign. They're trying to stop deportations. And someone just reported on Facebook that the Minutemen showed up for a counter rally. These people, they may not be using violence right now, but they're very much present. They're very much active. Because this is a hierarchy and we have intersections of oppression and that we have varying degrees of privilege assigned and doled out by this hierarchy, people experience oppression differently. Unfortunately, policing in the military are said to be kind of our social contract with the state for living here. Like, we pay taxes for these services, for this oppression. And in response, they protect us with violence. That's the exchange for us living under the state. People who are targeted for being undocumented immigrants, they don't have the state documentation. So the effects of those privileges mean that we need to really start thinking outside of the idea of, we were talking about the demonized other and how this idea of being infiltrated for our resources and really challenge those narratives because it's really just upholding hierarchy and the state usually has to focus and demonize particular communities to justify their authority. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. challenging the narrative of that as well as like assimilation into um into solutions into solutions that are given to us into ways of living that are otherized by the state by the status quo assimilation into the status quo <laughs> so you listen to on resistance and that was our discussion on militarization domestic and abroad join us next week at the same time sunday at 1 30 we'll be discussing uh hierarchy alternatives and the social war uh, you can follow us on Twitter at OnResistanceLA, um, Instagram OnResistance. You can check us out on our Tumblr at, onresist- at OnResistanceRadio.tumblr.com. Email us at OnResistanceRadio at Gmail and listen to all of our past shows and including this one at SoundCloud slash on-resistance.com. There's no way war, so get your game face on. Hoodie on, I bomb first for Trayvon. I'm tired of the marching, the rally, and the protesting. We hooping and hollering, still we getting no justice. To Daniel Diallo, Bell Grant, and Trayvon. It's the free mix on your radio station. Turn it up so you can drown out all the media hype. We plot, planning, and strategizing, ready to fight. The government ain't gonna stop it as long as they make a profit off our criminalization. Our people gonna be your target.